Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. My family thinks I'm crazy. Podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? From colonial governor John Winthrop the Younger, who was renowned for his alchemical knowledge and healing prowess, to the defiant Francis Wright, whose boisterous and heroic nature gave women around America a vision of the future, as other detractors smeared her as the red harlot. While many hold to the conviction that the United States is a Christian nation, it turns out the First Amendment allowed a diverse amount of religious and spiritual characters to flourish throughout the history of this young country. And here to revisit his amazing chronicle, American Metaphysical Religion, assistant to the late Manly P. Hall, author and musician Ronnie Pontiac returns, joining me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Ronnie Pontiac. When we're in the unobstructed, when we're disembodied, the most powerful urge is to do something to make it work better down here to think of something that you could go do that, 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 that makes the world a better place. And that it's like an obsession for every soul is how to make this grand experiment into something better than it is now. And from that point of view, when I think about that idea that they're up there tinkering with ideas about how to get this stuff across to us, right? How do we open up their minds? How do we, how we help them see the light? It's a very comforting idea that all that support is there. And certainly it's indigenous as well, right? Because thus the ancestors, after all, the ancestors, those who went before us and they still want us to be doing well and they want to help in any way that they can. 
ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and returning for his second time here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast is the rock star, the author, Manly P. Hall's personal friend and assistant, Ronnie Pontiac here yet again so soon. And I'm glad you're back, Ronnie. Thank you for being here. And we are just kind of the Patreon audience, I was recording, so they'll be able to hear what we were just talking about. Sign up on Patreon if you want to get the full scoop. But we did kind of get to where I wanted to start this conversation off, which is with John Winthrop the Younger and this very early period of colonial American history that, like the art we were talking about, has a sort of secular bias attached to it, right? We're given this idea that, oh, well, the only religious ideation going on in that time period was a very pure Christian, pragmatic one. When you look closer, you find out that it was a whole melting pot of various different groups of people, including the indigenous who were here first, obviously, and all of their influences that they brought to the equation, But John Winthrop the Younger, he gets brushed under the radar, being a governor of the colony of Connecticut. He's left an indelible mark here in New England, and he played a really important role in the early period. But what made him a big part of your book? Because he's sort of smack dab in the middle of the book. Did you know about him before going about doing this research, or was he one of the many people you have pulled into your net as you were casting this wide research to to create this book, which I should remind the audience is called American Metaphysical Religion. It is such an amazing book, but... Thank you. Yeah. What, where did he come into the fray? He definitely swam into the net, and I was surprised to find him there, and I was amazed, especially by him. I think he's the best really a contradiction to the idea of pilgrim Christianity that we've been taught. And so he was one of a group of people who in those days were called intelligencers. And this was related to the old concept of the cosmopolitan, which was an original word for alchemists. They were called cosmopolitan because they were often thrown out of the towns that they were in. So they wound up seeing a lot of the world and The intelligencers were essentially the leading intellectuals of their times. And they were in touch with each other, even though they were in very different areas and even sometimes continents. And they were, I consider them sort of the first internet hub almost in a way in that if there was a discovery in England, it would quickly be known throughout Europe and in the colonies because the information was shared by the intelligencers amongst themselves first. And, They did a lot to further science, to further interest and inquiry into the history of religion and into exploration of other approaches to religion. A lot of them were inventors, and they they were really a fantastic development of open-mindedness at a time when that wasn't very popular. And not a lot of information about them. It's not something that you run into in your average American history book or in the same way that if you do run into John Winthrop the Younger, as you just said, it's usually just a kind of boring political thing. They might mention that he did a lead refinery at one point or they leave out the interesting details, I think. So let's talk about him. His father was obviously John Winthrop the Elder, who was the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he is held up as one of the ultimate pilgrims. 
And his son was somebody who at a young age became very interested in esoteric studies. So for example, he and one of his friends traveled from England to Europe looking for Rosicrucians. They were a little late in the game. They, they had run into the Rosicrucian manifestos and the whole flurry of books and pamphlets that came out after it. And they were really interested in this stuff. And they wanted to meet a real Rosicrucian and be taught. They were quite disappointed. They didn't really meet anybody that seemed to them to have what Rosicrucians should have. But John Winthrop, the younger, made an interesting decision. He decided, if I can't meet a Rosicrucian, then I'll just try to live like one. And he devoted the rest of his life to Rosicrucian principles. And so he was somebody who was known for healing the sick without charging for it. He was somebody who was very interested in protecting the weak. He, for instance, protected one of the tribes that had been decimated by disease and was being encroached upon, not just by another tribe, but also by Boston, and who were disempowered even down to losing their names. And he put himself and his colony and other ventures at great risk to protect them and to give them back their land and their names and their sovereignty. He was someone who was deeply involved in alchemy and his medicines, which were famous in that area, the entire territory depended on him, were put into a whole system that he put together where he got a bunch of women and trained them in diagnosing the symptoms of the most common problems in the area. And then he had color-coded packets of medicine so they would know if these symptoms give them a red packet, if these symptoms give them the green packet. And then he sent them out across the territory to help people. He made gold. He was famous for his ability to make gold in those days. And supposedly there's still a hill that they show where they say that he made these gold rings. And there was one person who left a testimony that that he knew many times that when John Winthrop the Younger would go up on this hill and they were low on money, he would come down with a sack full of golden rings. And then they had plenty of money for this next period or project they were doing. Yeah, I've tried to look into where that place is. I don't want to give specific details, but it is interesting that Governor's Hill, as it was passed down in history to be called, is located near a place where the Native Americans have their own stories about an angry god who lived underground whose name was Makamudis. And uh, who knows if maybe John Winthrop heard lore of this cavern space there and maybe he had some kind of secret knowledge of what to utilize given the environment was the way it was yeah Uh, certain things you can find in a cave or maybe even streams that come from underground that create Mm -hmm. gold i've had guests on the show talk about how gold can actively form in certain streams that have the right mineral components and the right type of living water, but conversation for a different day. (laughs) That's fascinating. Yeah, I would love to. So another thing about John Winthrop the Younger, he had a lot of John Dee's manuscripts and books. Mm. And when he followed his father to the colonies, he had these crates that were filled with alchemical equipment, with John D. manuscripts and books. And on these crates, he put the Monus Hieroglyphica, 
the John D. symbol that is, is considered one of the ultimate symbols in esoterica. And which I think, as I've said before, it, it's comparable to a, a Southern pastor's son putting pentagrams on his luggage. It's a really strange thing for the son of the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony to be doing. But apparently this wasn't a problem because he wasn't censured for it. His father had no problem with him bringing the alchemical gear. In fact, there were pilgrims who were very interested in alchemy. And one of the most amazing things to me is that when Cotton Mather, who was a friend of John Winthrop the Younger, when he eulogized him, he referred to him as Hermes Christianus, the Christian Hermes. Now, whether you take that Hermes as thrice greatest Hermes or you take it as Hermes, the Egyptian god, or rather the Greek god, no, the Egyptian god. No, the Greek god. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it is okay because the <laughs> Greeks invaded Egypt and they basically were like, "Oh, Thoth, he's Hermes now." So yes, there's exactly. kind of a gray yeah. area there, anyways. Well, so much of it was codified by the Greeks. That's why right. I always I, I think of it as Greek because I do believe the Neoplatonists were involved in taking these teachings that were Egyptian right. and then sort of putting them into their language and their conceptualization yeah. based on Plato. So, yeah, it's, I always find it confusing which one we're talking about. But either way, we're talking about a very pagan symbol of wisdom. Right. And for Cotton Mather to refer to John Winthrop the Younger as Hermes Christianus, the Christian Hermes, is something that you would never expect a Puritan to do. Well, and so do you think that was more due to classism than maybe their personal religious ideas? Because we have an example of... Uh, another pagan, more maybe more outwardly so, Thomas Morton, who we spoke about last time, and his maypole and giving Native Americans guns probably was what got everybody upset the most. But in that respect, you have kind of two ends of the spectrum here. A guy who's the governor's son, who's given free reign to kind of do whatever they want because it's in the name of science. And those science was considered a sort of genius given to you from God, right? So it wasn't even, there was no separation the way we have it today. Meanwhile, Morton, I think, was kicked around and pushed out of where he originally settled because of his beliefs. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. And also, I mean, John Winthrop the Younger left the colony because right. he felt suppressed and he felt like he couldn't really do what he wanted to do there. So there were some kinds of pressure to conform going on in Boston, to be sure. Right. And I do think there may be some class aspects to it, but... I would also argue that even amongst those who didn't enjoy that privilege, they were exploring these matters in different ways. They might, they might be interested in what slaves brought over and slave people brought over from the Caribbean might be believing or doing. And they were interested in what religions that came over from Germany, like the Pietists, and what they were making out of Paracelsus. And so people were running into, in America, were running into these ideas in both high and low places. Right. And I think it was affecting everybody, in a sense, maybe not equally, because obviously with the kinds of privilege that John Winthrop the Younger had, he could pursue alchemy. He could have relationships with intelligencers all over the world. He could build a, a factory for lead and extraction of lead. And so this gave him more power to express these beliefs and to try to live them out than one would have normally mm. in Puritan society. I think that 
But there's always been this strain in Christianity, right? Even among the Catholics. I mean, it, it's always astonishing to me to find, for instance, there were Rosicrucian Catholics. There are persistent rumors that the first Rosicrucians showed up in California with the missions and so early with the Spanish missions. And around Monterey, supposedly something Rosicrucian was established. And there, I don't know if that's true, by the way, the evidence is very slim. The, the way that you would find in the Catholic Church Jesuits who were very interested in Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism, and even in ceremonial magic and Agrippa and all that, you could find examples of priests that were deeply into these materials and sometimes very well educated about it. And even within the limited degree they were allowed, admirers of some of it. And in, of course, in the Protestant world, we have a lot of interface with the Rosicrucians growing out of that whole scene with the debacle at the Palatinate that started the Thirty Years' War when Frederick took the throne of Bohemia and created this disaster. But while that was happening, all kinds of esotericists thought, wow, we, you know, we may be able to have an esoterically inclined emperor. We already had one. But this one's young, and he is somebody who wants to change the world. He wants to free the world from the Pope and from the Habsburgs, from the Holy Roman Empire. So maybe if he gets elected, we'll have somebody defend us from the Catholics. And so all this interest was always there in Christianity. And America, in particular, is a stud in Christian hybrids, right? So many of them are mentioned in the book where... I've argued that, and much better than myself, Catherine Albanese has argued very persuasively, I think, especially in her new book about the pursuit of happiness, that in America, Christianity was completely transformed. In fact, religion in itself was transformed because most of the monotheistic patriarchal religions have a fairly harsh view of the world and have the attitude that that happiness isn't as important as suffering to a degree, and that it's very important to live in a certain way here so that we don't suffer in eternity and having fun here often leads to suffering in eternity. Yeah. Not in America. I mean, the story was so changed that it became prosperity gospel in one sense. And now God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. It's if you're not, then you're out of sync with your spirituality. That is the opposite of what Jesus taught about rich people can't even get into heaven. Yeah. I think that this strain has been running through Christianity, especially through American Christianity all along. Look at an invention like the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ, which was hugely influential in the New Age and is still an important book. And the story behind that book is a guy that was a member of the Silver Legion, which was a fascist organization in America that was very interested in the occult and was involved with trying to support Hitler's goals. And one of the leaders wanted to become president. And so he had been a member, they called them the Silver Shirts because they used to wear these kind of silvery looking shirts that were kind of Nazi tailored. And he went off and he started this whole other thing and a lot of talking about white in this white light and white this purity and white clothing and but it was they were those they were awfully concerned with white and, and he comes up with this Aquarian gospel now where did he get it from very likely he stole it all of it from Nicholas Nodovich who had published a book 
claiming that he had seen a manuscript in a monastery in India, I believe, that was about somebody named Ishu that he thought was Jesus. And it was somebody that came from the Palestine area and was studying with the Tibetans and with the Hindu gurus. They were very impressed by him. They considered him to be somebody of high attainment, and they taught him quite a bit, and they also learned from him. Well, the book was dismissed as just probably fantasy. There's almost no question that the author of Levi, the author of, or Levi, the author of the Aquarian Gospel, that he just took the ideas from this book, which were the missing years of Jesus, had to do with him traveling in Egypt and then in in the East and learning and teaching. And ironically, years later, an article came out from a scholar in India who found the manuscript. So apparently Nadovich was not making this up. But the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ was, was published in a way to make it look like a Bible gospel in the columns and with biblical kind of language. And it was a big hit. And a lot of people thought it was the best way of knowing Jesus in a sense. It started a fairly large movement. And it's just one example of the way that the whole Jesus mythology and the religion of Christianity have been so changed in America. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, from my perspective, growing up here in New England, you know, we have a lot of, I guess you could say, imported Catholicism through the various different groups of European immigrants. And then you have the more, I guess, older generational WASP as it's kind of culturally Mm -hmm. known, right? White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And it is true that there is a sort of economic and kind of cultural difference, even though seemingly similar people, similar culture, they are living in the same towns with completely different lifestyles because of this little, I guess, this gap where I guess for a couple hundred years here in America, this idea of, and I heard you talking about this, reiterating the point that Albanese, is that her last name, makes that you really see this new version of Christianity forged here where the idea is not that, oh, you're suffering because that's what God wants. It's rather, no, we're prospering because that's actually what God's always wanted for us. Mm -hmm. We just had to get out of the way of those European kings and all that. I think in some respect, we've lost those battles that got us to that free. In the past 200 years, we've kind of you know, reverted back to what things used to be like. But for a while there, it did feel like despite the indigenous people, there was this whole huge frontier to be conquered and taken over. And this is, yeah, I think a big part of why America has this totally pragmatic kind of view that they've then exported to the rest of the world. It's helped inform this, I guess, modernist perspective, as it's probably called now in sociology. But yeah, I just think that so much of history, the occult aspects, the esoteric aspects just get swept under the rug. And like Shekmet, (laughs) they're being resurfaced right now at this time period, at least over the past half half a century or so, really, you know. All this new research that's coming out of academia, that's really the game changer. Yeah. Because for generations, it just wasn't acceptable to look at this stuff. It was all considered superstition and embarrassment, right? You wouldn't want to talk about Winthrop the Younger was into alchemy or that he, let alone Rosicrucians, because that's 
it's just wrong. And in fact, as recently as the mid 20th century, to study Pentecostals or evangelicals of any kind was considered radical. Religious historians were meant to look at the religion of the major, of the history of the major religious institutions. And they were not to look at what were considered silly superstitions that didn't affect anything really. These were the institutions that built the foundations of civilization and of the nations that we know. This other stuff was just a, it's human aberration. Now, more recently, it really gets going in the 60s, 70s, 80s. We start seeing a little bit more, a little bit more. Still, though, there's no academic framework for it. And I would think that Albanese's book, A Republic of Mind and Spirit, is the watershed moment in the 2000s. Her book argues very persuasively for the existence of American metaphysical religion and also points out how influential it really has been, that it can't be considered a triviality, that in fact, it's one of the central themes of America and has constantly been informing everything about America. And that change unleashed a whole generation of scholars. And suddenly there is a field of study called American metaphysical religion where academics can really dig into this stuff. So all these new books and articles that have been published have completely changed the view. That's that's kind of what is behind my book, because as I encountered all of this, just as an enthusiast, I was so excited by all these revelations, and I wanted to share them with people like myself, who probably would never hear about all these studies, because they exist in the dusty corridors of academia, and the books are ridiculously expensive, and so that has changed everything. Now, and it's also applicable to other things like Rosicrucianism or Orphic studies or, I mean, there's been similar revolutions in all these places where the amount of work has exponentially increased. So that new view, I think, is very exciting because it changes the whole picture of what American history looks like and what the American psyche is. Right. And to me, actually, American metaphysical religion, when people talk about Americans, it is more like what we think of as America than the various Christian denominations that are here. And I have argued in some cases that that some Christian denominations now resemble American metaphysical religion more than they resemble Christianity. And so that, that uncovering the side of America that we didn't know about, it's such an exciting thing. You know, it's that most of us think of ourselves as on the fringe. You know, we're out here on our own with the books that we've dug up and we know a few people like ourselves who have these interests and it's every time there's a new age, right? It's like, okay, so now we find, you know, wow, look, we discovered this, but there've been many new ages in America. And it's always been a stream that has been influential and important in America. And we are actually mainstream America in a weird way. And it's just, a complete turnaround. And also going back to what you said about the change in America between what it was like when it started, in the chapter on Francis Wright, I really try to look at that because that's fascinating too. Because this woman, she was a born in Scotland, brilliant young woman. She inherited money from her family. People died and she was off on her own. She had freedom that most women of her time didn't have because she had the combination of inherited money and a lack of relatives to, to 
prevent her from doing things. So she relates that when she was a kid, she heard about America in her, uh, I think it was her grandfather's library, and she fell in love with it. The whole concept of it, the revolution, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. She is a little kid. She just went, this is it. This is it. And she talked about how she frantically went through her grandfather's atlases, afraid America wouldn't be there anymore, that it was an experiment that had failed. And the great relief she felt when on a more modern atlas, she saw it was still there. And when she had the money and the freedom, she and her sister just came over to America and they traveled all around in the backwoods. I mean, everywhere, just two women traveling around on their own through America to experience this place. And she was astonished because at that time, this would be around the time that the founding fathers like Jefferson were still around, but they were very old. And it was sort of in the after flush of the winning of the American Revolution. And even on the boat, she says, coming to America, the sailors had copies of the Constitution in their pockets, like little books. And they talked about it all the time. And she could get really deep with them about the American project. And she couldn't believe it. She was like, even the sailors are intellectuals who are passionately into America. She, When she went out into the farmlands and the beginnings of what would become ranch country, she found the same thing. She found generous people. Nobody threatened her. Nobody attacked her. She was They were safe. And they would ask her to come in and have something to eat. And they would talk about the Constitution and the American experiment and how exciting it was. And so she fell in love. But then when she came back to New England and she started to travel around with Lafayette, she found slavery. She had not run into it. And she was devastated. She could not understand how America could in any way countenance slavery. And it became her mission to do something about it, which essentially ruined her life eventually. Before that, she became the first really popular public speaker who was a woman in American history. She would lecture to huge audiences. She was this tall woman with red curly hair, and they just they called her the red harlot of liberty because many people disagreed with her. She thought that women should be free. She had all kinds of ideas that would later become popular, but she was way ahead of everybody. So she went back to England and she came back to America not that long later. I think it's like 10 years, something like that. <sighs> Completely different. The sailors were different. Everybody was different. Now it was all money. Go, let's make this into, you know, something where we can all be millionaires. And nobody cared about the Constitution anymore. And nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. And she was stunned. She, she just couldn't understand how they had lost it so quickly. And this love-hate relationship that developed with America lasted through most of her life. She made some bad decisions, like she she married someone and had a child. She was terrible as a mother and as, a, as somebody keeping house. She just couldn't do it, and it wrecked her. And she became a recluse. And then she also became estranged from her husband and daughter, who then were constantly trying to take her to court and... She became a very lonely woman. It's a sad story because at the end of her life, she had no one. And her last attempts to lecture happened in ugly, 
old venues with hardly anybody there. And that she had been a celebrity representing liberty in America. And now she was just this forgotten relic. So that to me, she's such a great symbol of what happened that initially there was a passion in America. They did understand even people who were not intellectuals or, you know, leaders of society, but all through every level of society, people were thrilled by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and what they meant for the future of the world. And then within just a few years, it turned into the other America that we know, which is how can I make plenty of money? How can I dominate everything around me? And I don't really care about that other side of it. It's, that's a waste of time. There's no money in that. And so I think that America is still struggling with this split. And it's the same thing as the split between the Christians who have an open mind. So Francis Wright's grandson, a man named William Guthrie, was very influential in the culture of New York City. He was raised Episcopalian because Francis's daughter did not like her mother and she didn't like what her mother had done. And so she wanted her boys to be good Episcopalian ministers. But William was truly his grandmother's grandson. And he was put in charge of a famous church in New York called St. Mark's of the Bowery. And this was in a bad area infested with communists and criminals. And they just kind of gave it to him to do the best he could with it. And he turned it into this amazing cultural center that it still is today. This is the church where Allen Ginsberg and the, the Beats first met to read poetry. This is the church that Patti Smith first read poetry in. This is a church that has launched so much poetry and dance and all kinds of arts. And he was the one who started that because he would do these amazing events. For instance, he was one of the first people to have Khalil Gibran read at this church. He was one of the first to have Isadora Duncan come and perform. He brought in indigenous chiefs to do rituals, simplified versions of rituals and dances for harvest and such. He brought in Paramahansa, I think. No, that's Paramahanda, I think. I'm not sure about the name, who was a student of Ramakrishna to talk about the, that whole Raja Yoga system. And he was also a friend of Frank Lloyd Wright. And they wanted to build, they had this plan to build this giant temple. It, was, it would be this whole like complex that a million people could come to. And it would have a temple for every single religion in the world so that people could just go from one to the next and experience all the world's religions in one place. And Wright built, had this plan for this huge tower that would be in the middle of it. And here's a guy who is thinking that the best way to bring people in to the church is to give them culture, to give them views of other cultures, and to be truly, as he put it, Catholic, which universal, include all the religions, include everybody. He got in a lot of trouble the people who were leading the Episcopalian church in New York were not amused. And the press came out and said things like, oh, it's girls were dancing around with bare hips and bare feet. And, you know, wow, not true, totally made up. Right. But caused a lot of trouble. Another thing that Guthrie did that's really amazing is he invented light shows. 
because he wanted dramatic lighting for these events he was doing and for his sermons. So he came up with the whole concept of colored lighting and that eventually became concert lighting. A trip, right? You know, he got into some big hassles with the bishop of the Episcopalian church there, and they started doing things like he was trying to do an outreach for homeless people, and they didn't want him doing it. And so he suggested that the homeless people that he was helping go to the bishop's church and ask for help. And that caused a lot of rancor. <laughs> William's brother, Kenneth Guthrie, was also an Episcopalian minister, but he spent most of his life self-publishing translations of the Neoplatonists and just rare pagan wisdom texts. It was actually brilliant, but he was born too late. If he'd been born 30, 40 years earlier, he would have been part of the big platonic renaissance that occurred around the New England Transcendentalists, and he would have been you know, celebrated the way that Thomas Johnson was, who published the Platonist newspaper. But he was too late. There wasn't really nobody into Neoplatonism when he was writing. And he just would publish these books by himself and then complain bitterly in the introductions about how he was ignored and he couldn't even make a living at this. And so those kinds of Christians who are OK with the esoteric, who are interested in other spiritual paths, continue to be a divide from the ones who think that's wrong, that all that paganism is wrong, that, that you know, you've got to stick to the Bible, you got to do it this way, and there's only one way, and the rest of it is Satan. <laughs> and right. they we're still going through this, right? Because Absolutely. look what's happening, you know, what some of the moves that are being made by the court, and Clarence Thomas, who's sort of the leader of this kind of radicalism and the conservative side of the court, he's a Catholic, and his interpretation of Catholicism is kind of interesting, isn't it? This is a guy that was way into pornography. I mean, there's lots of people who witnessed that. This is a guy who loves to party with billionaires and go on yacht rides and stuff. But he's a Catholic. So he's going to tell women, no, you can't have choice because that's against God. It's the same shadow. It's the same thing that's been going on in America all along, where you would have like esoteric explosions and then suddenly in response, evangelical upsurges and right. people fleeing from one to the other and then back again. It reminds me of The Simpsons when it's the end of the world and everybody runs from the bar into the church and from the church into the bar. <laughs> it's just like America reversing, you know, these this all the way through its history. Right. So we have a lot to integrate, I feel, as a country. And as I see as an astrologer, you know, America's going through its Pluto return right now. And it sure is. <laughs> a lot of shadows are very visible for all of us. And there's a lot of power struggle going on and a lot of fear about what happens to the country. Can it survive? Traditionally in history, Pluto returns are not an easy thing for countries, we can look at Rome as an example. On the first Pluto return for Rome, it, Rome wouldn't have survived if it hadn't been for the Severan dynasty. And this was a Carthaginian and Assyrian wife who became emperor and empress. And it was a short-lived dynasty, but it kept Rome together. And it also fostered a flowering of interest in pagan religion and culture that probably produced Philostratus, Apollonius of Tyana, and probably produced the golden ass of Apuleius, and probably the Orphic hymns in the form we have them now. So the second time that it came around for Rome, Rome ended. 
So here we have this big challenge right now for America of dealing with our shadow, dealing with what America has done in the world, what America does in the world and to our citizens, and then these competing ideas about how the future should look. That's what I find so strange about this is that if you take away the ideology and the details of belief systems, there's a lot of similarity between the two sides of the divide. You know, the people that are wanting to take time back and take away women's rights and take away the rights of people of color and such are very passionate about saving America. They think that's how you preserve what is great about America. On the other side, most of us feel that, well, America is about freedom and you're taking away rights. How can that possibly be America? But we also are passionate about the potential of America. And both sides agree that everything's messed up right? That the system isn't working right. So it would be so wonderful if the two sides could get together, you know, and learn from each other and find a way forward based on compromise rather than trying to disempower and hating each other. I agree. And I'm really glad you said that. I think podcasts like this are part of this sort of integration and and hopefully will make it through this Pluto return in one piece because of the interconnectedness that we have now that for the most part, 200 years ago, when some of the characters we've been discussing were alive, they kept their network of information alive through sharing, you know, physical mail, physical writing. And now we can do that instantly. So maybe Mm -hmm. we're looking at a situation where you know, will fare better than they had in the past. But Frances Wright, she she died before the Civil War occurred, and you wrote a little bit about that in your book. But I imagine by the time she realized that uh, America had gone the way of capitalism and not exactly the warm community-oriented version of it, a sort of robber baron or maybe precursor to the robber barons. In my mm-hmm. research, I found that Yale had actually been the first to distill what we know now as petroleum out of what they then called rock oil. And this certainly was an alchemical feat and certainly changed the whole world. I mean, we we can't imagine what the world would look like without automobiles and, you know, planes and all these Mm -hmm. things that gasoline and petroleum made possible. It also Mm -hmm. made possible, you know, these this class of, well, as they were called, robber barons, but, you know, industrialists. And I think now, especially on TikTok, you see this incredible interest in this idea called the reset, right? And I, for one, I'm a little skeptical about this. I think it's an interesting concept. I don't know if I 100% buy into it, but it definitely feels like Uh, Part of what has left us in this kind of divided state is a lack of continuity to our roots, because if people understood Mm -hmm. the characters like Francis Wright and even John Winthrop, the younger and all the others in between, Mr. Guthrie, who you mentioned that is it St. Mark's at the Bowery? That's down in New York City, right? Yeah, Yeah, I got to go down there and check that out. That sounds fascinating. But these are the folks that are sort of like the unsung heroes of America and even Tecumseh and Mm -hmm. I forget the gentleman who essentially created Tammany Hall, Tammany, but we, you know, the guys we talked about in our last conversation, Mm -hmm. I mean, these are people who 
left an indelible mark on America, and we're not left with their impression. It seems like we have a sort of goldfish's memory with with yeah. our public school education. We're given a hundred years. You know, they make it so. It's actually a history filled with fascinating characters and unlikely events and mysteries. Right. But they make it into this recitation of dates and events that are stultifying. Right. That's why it's so nice. I mean, podcasting and also social media where people can go and encounter these ideas. Because in the past, you were at the mercy of the libraries and the schools pretty much. Right. Now we can talk to each other in ways that were much more difficult. So there were esoteric societies, but it takes a commitment to to walk in there, to attend classes, to become part of a, a social community is not the easiest thing in the world. But it is pretty easy to get online and go listen to somebody and maybe have your imagination sparked and then do some research yourself. So mm. I'm hopeful about that. And I also feel that I think uh, I do think that part of what we're facing right now is a generational crisis. That's no revelation. I think that there is a vast majority of older people who are have a certain conception about things. And there is a majority of younger people who are more open minded. And I think that the. I mean, just to give a brief example, having watched a bit of the town hall that CNN did with the former president. And seeing the reactions of the, of his crowd to him being misogynistic and, you know, just who he is. And, and their glee in that. And it reminds me so much of, I had a relative who was a really great, amazing human being. But he had this idea about America and about American men that was John Wayne. It was, he loved the American swagger, a guy who just treats women like, like they're, you know, interchangeable, who's smoking a cigar and says funny things and isn't afraid to use a cuss word to dismiss something as ridiculous and a guy you can count on. He's a can-do guy kind of thing. And I feel like there's a whole generation in particular that, that fell in love with it, that wants to be, that when they see him, that's the way they want to be. They want somebody like that. They want a, a guy who's says whatever he thinks and, and goes against the grain and he's not afraid to insult people. That was a thing at one time. And you see it even in later generations. I mean, if you look at, at the way that we, the kinds of people that were held up as, you know, as celebrities and such in the past, there was a tendency to prefer the hyper-masculine Right. In sports, if you look at the difference, just for example, in the NBA right now between back in the day when you had guys like Kobe Bryant or Jordan who were kind of vicious and were all about winning and were furious and were playing with this furious intent. And today it's quite emotional and sensitive in comparison. I was amazed to see Lonnie Walker, for example, of the Lakers crying because he did really good and in a game unexpectedly and the team was all hugging him. And I mean, boy, man, you couldn't do that back in the day. He would have been ridiculed, right? So things are changing. Now, I think a lot of people want it to go back the way it was. They're more comfortable with it. Yeah. They're afraid of a world where Sekhmet is a symbol of women, right? They want Aphrodite to be women. They want women to be lovely and good mothers. And they don't want women to be flexing their muscles and going out there and taking over stuff. Right. A lot right. of change going on. I, I think that will continue to be the case. And how to reach 
the people who are still on the other side of the divide is to me the issue because what I find so weird about it is, you know how many of these people, for instance, grew up on rock and roll music who grew up listening to revolutionary ideas coming from, you know, people who are selling, you know, let's have a great time. And they got something out of it completely different from what someone like me got out of it. And I don't know how they, I keep hoping that in some way they can be reached. There can be some sort of a revelation in that community that opens them up a little bit, but I kind of feel like they're just going to have to slowly ride off into the sunset and allow everybody else to recreate this American dream in a way that more reflects what people really want it to be, which is ethical and free and equitable. And and those kinds of things are, are dear to the hearts of most Americans. And that's what most of the world wants America to be. So maybe we can do that. Maybe the Pluto return means that we have a rebirth ultimately. And sometime over the next 20 years or so, we see a brighter America, certainly not free of all these negative traits, but maybe the other side gets a chance for a change, right? Maybe we get to to really impress our values on America and not be constantly victimized by old traditions that force us to conform. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly has. It feels like things have shifted and there was a sort of paradigm that uh, that was instilled and people look back to this American ego, this American icon of John Wayne. And that really is, in from what I've researched, a byproduct of, you know, in other words, frontier capitalism or exploitative yeah. capitalism. You know, you put people in these situations where, you know, women become resources and the company or the job that's employing them becomes the authority in the community. And yeah, there's a lot that needs to be reconciled with, with the damage that's been done. But I think if we go even further back, we find more examples of women in charge. I mean, Sekhmet, for example, we have plenty of cultures around the world where women didn't fall under a sort of patriarchy. And yeah, I think part of this American delusion that we've been put into is realizing that this left, right, conservative versus Democrat dichotomy is just fraught with all sorts of traps and sort of pitfalls because, I, I mean, and speaking from my opinion here, I've always felt like it's a classism issue more than it is a an issue of ethics and freedom. I think the the people at the top have no room for for people's you know wants. They just want us to kind of follow their lead, and if they can you know throw us a bone here and there and make us feel we're living in some sort of illusion of freedom, well that helps their cause to keep their engine you know burning and. Yeah, there was a time when, you know, people were freer to sort of engage in in these kind of open-minded ideas. And, and that's kind of, I guess, what made America different from the rest of the world at a certain period of time. Hence the part of your book where you talk about the Platonists on the Sunset Strip, particularly because you were on the Sunset Strip when you found this a sort of collection of books, correct? This was yeah. kind of like a something winking at you, you know, opening up this world that was kind of hiding away in the annals of American history, right? This yeah. whole saga of Platonism and these Plato clubs and people yeah. had a real fascination with the 
well, I guess we could call it antiquities, right? You know, mm-hmm. Greek and Roman cultures. I think part of it is education. Mm. What's the difference between Tom Morton and the Puritans? It's oversimplified, but the Puritans, Bible, Bible, books about the Bible, Puritan books, that's it. The Cavaliers, which I think of Thomas Morton as representing to some degree, they loved literature. They were into Shakespeare. They were into Spencer. They, they were interested in the literature of the past. They were interested in Plato and Aristotle. And I think education is a big part of the challenge that we're facing here because I sometimes, I think that this is deliberately engineered. So, for example, just looking at music, in my own experience, I found the indie world to be hugely transformative. The corporate music world was really difficult. It was a lot of misogyny, a lot of really nasty characters there. The indie world was kind of idealistic and very pro-woman. And especially, of course, in the Riot Girl subculture where I started out. And when we did our national tour, I think it was 98 might have been 99. I was stunned because all these famous indie clubs that we played, like the Small Intestine in Baltimore and 17 Nautical Miles in Portland and the Jabberjaw in Los Angeles, were all getting closed down. And this was partially because the kids were getting more violent and were doing a lot of like smashing windows around the clubs and that kind of thing. But it was also because... There was a concerted effort, I believe, on the conservative side to use things like parking laws and fire marshals and city councils to shut down the indie world. And they did it. And so where there had been once, I mean, we set up our entire tour through our fans and our fellow bands and we slept on living room floors and it was an incredible experience. And and everybody was so supportive People would drive hours and hours to see your band. And it was just really a a fun thing. And most of them were so intelligent. They were making zines and selling them at the shows. And there's lots of intellectual discussion going on and love of books. And uh, it was a great scene to be in. I mean, that Riot Girl scene in L.A. and East L.A. was amazing because you'd like a band would come up and they would play and then everybody would sit down and read. And so... Once all that got wiped out, so Ticketmaster made big concerts unaffordable and Live Nation got in there and they really polarized, you know, only the biggest acts really. And then the rest of them get packaged into these mega kind of got five bands going at once situations. And and then, of course, the death of what is the minor leagues of music, right? Because you go to play those small clubs like Jabberjaw, for example, is where bands like Nirvana and Hole and the Gits and all kinds of bands learned how to do it in these little clubs. And they would often get their opportunities because somebody saw them at a little club and a band or an executive and said, okay, let's kick you up to the next level. We got that offer a few times. So why did they wipe it out? Well, do you know how powerful Rock for Choice was at one time? It's hard to believe how big a deal it was, how many voters they registered, how many minds they changed, how much they raised the feeling among women that they had rights and that they should fight for them. That's all gone. 
And I sometimes wonder when I see kids who, you know, the incels who freak out and they start shooting people. I mean, I, I often think that's me. You know, if I had found a gun in high school, I probably would have done something like that because of how I experienced high school. I couldn't find one. I did find a guitar. <laughs> You know, right. I found a band and suddenly people were afraid of me because <laughs> I was this crazy musician. It was great. For the first time in my life, I could swagger, you know. Right. And I saw so many people like that, you know, kids that just came from devastating backgrounds and reinvented themselves in music and became joyful, powerful people. You really can't do it now. I mean, you've got to do it through YouTube, which means I've got to sell myself. I've got to be up there and be a brand. I've got to think about how to do that wasn't like that. You know, you'd go to a club and you'd see a band you liked and there'd be somebody else sitting there singing. You start talking and they'd be a drummer and you were a guitar player. You go, hey, let's jam. And it's a completely different experience back then. Right. So I think that this has been also done in our schools. I think that the schools have been just all the creativity is sapped out of them. All the interesting, nothing can be too controversial. And even the way they are now, we're still seeing in some states like Florida, that it's not good enough, that they're still banning books and trying to make it more and more conservative. Now, I do from pessimists in one way, which is I came from a world like that where you couldn't get hold of good books. You couldn't get, I mean, it just wasn't much going on. All If they succeed and they recreate the 1950s, they're just setting up the same rebellion that happened in the wake of the 1950s. The same thing will happen. So it's the ultimate and useless, I think, strategizing to think that you can turn back the clock like that and that it won't have the same influence ultimately, which is the explosion of the human spirit in a burst of creativity. I think they did the same thing with drugs. I didn't I wasn't around early enough to really get the experience. But Manley Hall's driver, Arthur Johnson, who was also the guy who recorded most of those lectures that we hear on YouTube by Manley Hall. Great guy, a guitar player who toured with Lena Horn and all kinds of Paul Horn and just amazing musician. He used to just tease me mercilessly and just say, you missed everything. You missed the best drugs and the best music and the best sex and the best, I mean, everything. You missed it all, man. And he used to talk about how different the drugs were then that they were all like for your soul they were you know he would talk about quaaludes and how great the lsd was and how people were relaxing and it was all about being sensual and sexual and now we have nothing but phenytal phenytal cocaine phenytal weed phenytal you know Fentanyl, and so yeah. many of these drugs have been changed to the point that it's they're unrecognizable and we're seeing this whole movement going on in the psychedelic world of legalization based on therapeutics, which right. is a great thing. But man, is that different from let's take acid and have great sex and make great music and, you know, change the world. You know, this is let's take acid so we can work at the factory and not get too upset. Hmm. That kind of re-engineering, going back to your reset idea, has been going on. Oh, that's a reset, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big reset. Right. And so now as far as the reset that people talk about now, you know, are there people out there that are probably trying to push an agenda like that? 
Hell yes. I'm sure there are. There's all kinds of people out there pushing all kinds of agendas. Is it some sort of, you know, a massive reptilian Illuminati plan to destroy humanity? And I'm not so sure about that. I mean, it's human nature. I think I'm with Swedenborg who said that there are no demons. There's just evil people. He thought the demons were disincarnate human beings who died evil. They stayed evil. He also believed, for example, that God never puts anyone in hell. People go into hell because they want to, because it's where they feel comfortable. They don't like heaven. <laughs> if you're somebody who thrives on anger and competition and hatred, you don't, you're not going to want to be around heaven. You're going to want to be in hell. There's a lot of that stuff. So I think that, that it's so easy. There's so much paranoia going on out there. In that lecture about Sekhmet, I talked about egregores, right, and the development of that concept. And I don't want to dismiss anything. I think that egregores have useful, there's useful ideas there about resisting charismatic leadership in groups and valuing independence and all kinds of good ideas are invested in that belief system. But if you're you're going to tell people that when they think strongly or speak strongly, especially in groups, that they're creating these entities that have no ethics that will then manipulate everybody and that are only wanting to empower themselves. I mean, man, we don't need that paranoia. We have a lot of stuff to work on in the world right in front of us right now. And I feel the same way about the reset as I do about that. Like there may be truth in it. But what good does it do me? I have to take my corner of the world and my decision making and create the universal reformation there. And that brings us to John Winthrop the Younger, right? Because that's what he did. He saw the Rosicrucian ideal and he was one of the rare readers to get it, to go, well, I need to do this in my corner of the world. It's not about finding the Rosicrucians and then being a Rosicrucian. It's about how do I live these ideas where I am? And he was a blessing. I mean, this is a guy who's dispensing medicines to people that are effective, famously effective. This is a guy who's protecting the weak tribes and he's protecting people of other belief systems who are being attacked by Boston because they're nonconformist. And he's living those ideals. And so I see it as each of us has to, in our as we best can, to bring into our own lives and to, therefore to the lives of people around us that we interact with these ideas, this hope, these, these feelings of wonder about the world. Mm. And this ultimately relates to really going way off subject to something I don't know if I spoke with you about last time. I like to use this example from The Secret of the Golden Flower, which is a Taoist alchemical text from China. And... It's basically the idea is this, that when we incarnate into a body, our soul metaphorically splits. And what that means is it's not really split. It's, we have a soul. But the part of our soul that is involved in keeping the body going, paying attention to all the millions of processes that are going on, all the little lives, the universe almost, that makes up a human body, and the world that our brains open up to us where we're out here, we need to survive, we need companionship, we have goals, we have all that stuff. So we're immersed in materiality, right? We're immersed in keeping everything going and trying to do the best we can. And according to The Secret of the Golden Flower, 
the lower soul becomes so entangled in this that it grows to hate and fear life, right? It's claustrophobic. The soul is free. I remember I had a near-death experience once, and I mean, all I can say is I just felt like I could breathe for the first time in my life. Like, you know, like like there's no, there was nothing cloying, there was no weight, there was, it was just pure consciousness. And it was such a great liberation. I felt like the world I was leaving was like a little flat, two-dimensional gray thing. You know, I couldn't believe that it kept my attention the way it had. And so when you are living in the lower soul, you grow to hate life. You become morbid. You love death. You are, you're filled with hate and anger. And ultimately, you fear the world. You fear other people. You feel that the other, that everything out here, the other, is strong and permanent. And you are so weak. And you're just running into things that take away parts of you. And, and you eventually you'll be gone. And, you know, how horrible. And people live that way. They make political decisions that way. They have whole careers that way. They live in this place of suffering and fear and hate. And they really want to get free of the body. The lower soul wants to get free of the body. So in a way, it's deeply suicidal. It takes on bad habits. It does stupid things. It loves war. It, it wants to get out. But the higher soul is still there. And when you can access the higher soul, you love life. You look around you and you go, wow, what is this? I mean, I know what it is, but I'm not even sure what it is. It's some amazing experience, right? And these people and the, my, the animals and the, the beautiful flowers and the books and the, you know all these things that are around us that are wonders. I get to enjoy them. Are you kidding I get to actually co-create this world while I'm here. And all of us are journeying together. Even my enemies are this close to me. We're all in this space time together or whatever it is. And what a privilege it is to be here. What a marvelous experience it is. And now the world is frail. The world is always changing. The world doesn't last. Everything falls back into the sand. My consciousness it's here. It will be here. And so I prize all of this now. I cherish it because it's just beautiful dream or whatever you want to compare it to. That to me is, is a great metaphor for the problem. And if you accept the religion that tells you that natural desires are evil or that women have to be disempowered or anything that is the denial of life, well, you're in the lower soul and you're making lower soul decisions. All of us need to get to the higher soul. And the funny thing is, it doesn't take a whole lot of people who, who accomplish this to make big changes in culture. That's one of the things that I really saw in this book was, you mentioned the Platonist, you talk about a handful of people, uh, the, the New England transcendentalists, a handful of people, the intelligencers, handful of people. It's not a whole lot of people, but the intelligencers, the New England transcendentalists, the Platonists in America, they had what I'm describing, the love of life, the, the enthusiasm. Emerson's fa famous saying, why should we have the religions of those who came before us? Why can't we have a direct experience of the divine? 
And that is so radical, right? I mean, that that was considered just blasphemy when he wrote it. He was hated. But the next generation, so many people were inspired by him and just lived according to his vision almost. And a lot of Platonism came out from the uh, under the wing of transcendentalism in America. So suddenly you had these Plato clubs where you had uh, women who were school teachers or you had all sorts of local people getting into these clubs where they were reading Plato. They were celebrating Plato's birthday. They were having big discussions about what Plato meant in the symposium. And every time that happened in American history, something good happens. And going back to my pal, Art Johnson, he said, among the things I missed, he said, he said, you know, he said, not only could I walk down to the Sunset Boulevard and see Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison or, you know, on any given night, but I could sit on a bench on Sunset Boulevard and there'd be a couple of hippies there talking about Nietzsche at like a doctorate level. He said, it seemed like everybody was talking about stuff like that. Well, it reminds me of what Francis Wright said about America when she first came here, that everybody was talking about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. That's the kind of excitement that we need in the world. And I think podcasters do have, they're like the modern intelligencers, right? They do have the ability to do this, to turn people on to these ideas and to open up their world and to give them like a new vision of life. And that's what we need right now. That's what the country needs. And so much of the stuff that's going on politically on both sides is so stale. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Well, and it definitely, I mean, I'm only 28 years old and I feel like things have repeated themselves nearly three times in my lifetime. I mean, not that I was very aware of Clinton's presidency, but then I was very aware of Bush's presidency, Obama's presidency, the debacle with Bernie Sanders, and then every, all the chaos that has ensued since, right? So mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, it has been flipped enough times to where rational people might might have either given up on trying to make heads or tail of it, or they've dedicated a lot of time and probably emotional health to it as well. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think education is surely to blame. One of the guests I recently had on the show, his name is John Kleisek, and he's written a book called School World Order, and he details oh. how that same class of robber barons, Rockefellers, the usual suspects, they slowly but surely changed our education system, you know, standardized it, medicine, and all these other oversight sort of decisions that have affected countless lives in the name of efficiency or in the name mm -hmm. of someone making a bonus. That exactly. It, it's really unfortunate considering the legacy we have here. I mean, John Winthrop the Younger, to bring him up again, he united the Connecticut colony and the New Haven colony. At that time, there were several different kind of disparate groups in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, we're all going to be one state. And that document that he created, it informed the United States Constitution. It was actually one of the reasons why England never kind of took over New England, because in the Connecticut colony, we hid that charter in an oak tree. Unfortunately, it was struck by lightning 100 years ago. Maybe that was an <laughs> omen that somebody should have followed up on. But yeah, that charter oak was, you know, essentially connected to John Winthrop the Younger, this alchemist, this member of the Royal Society who had a vision of America being free. He even, you know, he was tasked with 
cataloging the resources here in New England, and he purposefully spent more time on things like hummingbirds and flowers when the guys back in England, they were hoping to for him to tell them about, you know, hardwoods and minerals, because that's what mm-hmm. they wanted to exploit here, furs and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. He had a mind for what America could be even back yeah. then, and I think without him... We may be in some sort of, you know, Ministry of England still, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are plenty of reasons for folks to value their education and go back and look even, you know, a hundred years. One of the things that I brought up earlier, the reset, maybe I should have clarified because that is a term mm-hmm. that's sort of loaded and there's people who talk about the technocratic reset and then there's another sort of lesser known, I guess, alternative idea that history itself has been reset with the advent of the world's fairs. And there's some truth to that. When you look at these Mm -hmm. world fairs, what did they do? They implemented this idea, this racist idea that some groups of people were more evolved than others. And you can Mm -hmm. tell by their skull and they would. Right. It's true. Yeah. You know, it it was really horrible to hear what they did. You know, they'd have like Native Americans in cages dressed in like primitive clothing saying, "Okay, here's the evolution of man right before your eyes. And it was just a sort of racist imagination. And there are countless examples of it. But one thing that, you know, considering what you've looked into and just how people were in the 1800s, because I think people really don't, they don't recognize how sophisticated people were back then. And one of the troubling things that I've noticed in this community is people, they'll go and they'll look at old buildings and they'll say, look at how amazing and elegant and sophisticated this is. We can't do this today, so there's no way somebody could have done this 100 years ago. That right. This must be some ancient Atlantean or ancient Tartarian or some kind of civilization that was here that was wiped out. And maybe there's some truth to that, but I think it's the more reasonable explanation is people were just more sophisticated 100 years ago and they Mm -hmm. had access to this type of stuff and they valued the ancient world and tried to recreate it here on this open template that was america very much so you have for example was it oklahoma i'm not sure of the state but there was a state that had a statue a golden statue of Ceres, the Greek goddess of grain and of really a fertility. Is that Nebraska? Yeah, yeah, Nebraska. I think that's correct. I think I've seen that statue. So the idea was, and this was very common, to celebrate by using Greek or Roman imagery. So we're celebrating that we had a really great agricultural year. We have all this extra tax income. So we're going to put up a golden statue of Ceres on the Capitol Dome to to show how prosperous we are. No one thought anything of it. It wasn't anti-Christian or something. But within the last few years, there was an effort made by Christian politicians to have it removed because it's a pagan idol. And so this is this back and forth that we see that really on one level is education. Uh, on another level, it's what, whether one is living in fear. So like so many Brits from the past, many Americans in the 19th century and even in the early 20th were fans of Roman and Greek mythology. They found it inspiring. They wanted those kind of symbols around them. They saw those as civilizations that were precursors to our own, that they appreciated. Now we have, but that's the devil. Right. A group of people who feel, no, there's no room for that. And so all those people teaching metaphysics on TikTok, they're deluded by demons and they're very dangerous. 
Right. That's a bad way to to be involved in your community, to to go looking for, you know, everything that's not me is evil. And that is a part of the American shadow that I think really needs attention and needs to be. I mean, this is a country that was established for freedom of religion. And we have it in sort of a clunky way at this point. But as we can see with what's going on politically, it isn't we don't have a system that, that, that really reflects the will of the majority or the sense of compromise. We have a system in which extremes drive the narrative. So we have extremes on the left that are very triggering to the right. And we have extremes on the right that are very triggering to the left and maybe to the middle, too. And then the guess is, will enough people vote and will enough of the middle go our way is really what our politics has come down to. Right. And once you're in that dialogue of, no, you're wrong, your stuff is Satan and nothing that you can say from there is useful. There's no point for dialogue. And right now we are in this moment. We'll see what happens with the default, right, where we do have a group of people who are like, yeah, let's default on the national debt, even though it's never happened before, because that's the only way to do good. We have to do this drastic, difficult thing in order to get the results that we want, which is a good thing. And Gary, there is that old school Christian thinking, right, that you know people need to suffer and we're not going to help people. We're going to let them deal with it as best they can. And that's the only way we can do this. And so... This reminds me of Thomas Harriot, who was, no, rather, sorry, Thomas Morton, who was so shocked when he was imprisoned by the pilgrims. And it was winter. They were afraid of the wilderness. They couldn't get any food. They were starving. He said, let me go get you food. You know, I'm a hunter. Not a problem. I'll come back, I swear. You know, and he did. He brought them food. I mean, what a guy right there. He could have just left and let them starve. He brought back the food. But he didn't have enough with him for everybody. And so the richest among them took the food and the poor didn't get any. And so Morton said, let me go back. Let me get food for everybody. And they refused to let him. So, see, there, that is in the American psyche, this idea that the poor should be suffering, that, that this world isn't made in a way where everybody can be happy. But that's going against the pursuit of happiness, which is America's principal obsession, right? Right. Right. It definitely feels very short-sighted. And there's this invasive ego that, for worse and for better, has kind of shaped America. In many ways, we can point to it as this American exceptionalism as a what got us here, but it's also a downfall in many ways. And hopefully, now that this information age is upon us, we'll be sort of balanced out by the rest of the world in a way that everybody gets some equality. I think that's really, now we're seeing the the global poor and the divide between a homeless person here in the States compared to maybe somebody in Mumbai or Indonesia, right? And you have people who are living in absolute squalor comparatively. Mm-hmm. And hey, I mean, I've seen tents in Austin and Los Angeles, not personally, mm-hmm. but over video. And yeah, it's pretty, it's getting there too here. So I don't know if we can reconcile that here and today, but the very least we can kind of learn from the past and hopefully not repeat it. But it does seem that these things 
work in cycles because you write about a gentleman named Willie Reichel, who at one point in history, he came to America because it offered him the freedom to express these interests that he had Mm -hmm. kind of picked up in Germany. But at that time, for whatever reason, it wasn't as popular over there. And he came over here on a sort of psychic tour. Can you get into yeah. who Willie Reichel was and what he yeah, exactly he, did? Yeah, very interesting guy. He was he was a magnetic healer, and this was very popular at that time in Europe because of Mesmer. And he, he his book includes some very high up there authority in German government who says, this guy is really good. He healed me with this stuff and gives a detailed reaction to it. And he claimed to be very successful at it, but he was closed down by the medical establishment in Germany. And he also became interested in spiritualist phenomena. But in Germany, spiritualists were just often sent to jail when they were caught doing what they did. So he had heard that spiritualism was alive and well in America. So he took a trip and he just decided, I'm going to go see what's going on in the world. And he traveled across America. He didn't find much until he got on the West Coast. And then he had these this series of mind-blowing experiences that he wrote in a book. And he wound up living in Los Angeles in the very early days. On a side note, it's kind of hilarious because he starts out going, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. The weather is so gorgeous and the flowers. And he winds up going, it's sunny every day. I can't stand it anymore. It's the weather never changes. Typical Angelino, <laughs> even though he was from Germany. But he so he he had experiences like a fairly illiterate medium in San Francisco who had at this time, there were a lot of materializations going on and he had a friend of his materialize in the proper uniform of this German county that he lived in or whatever, and who spoke like with his voice in his accent and knew things that this fellow had known. That's just one of many experiences he had like this. And he just, he had his sister, for example, came in and talked to him about details about the family, but she literally like formed in front of him and was standing there in this kind of wispy sort of vision of herself. He had many such experiences. He experienced a medium who teleported himself from downstairs to upstairs. And all this was checked and there were no trap doors or ladders or, and he couldn't explain it, but he wanted to report these amazing experiences. And he wanted to, his whole goal in life was to get scientific authorities in Europe to investigate these mediums. He tried to set it up, but he never really did. And then one of the mediums that he got to go there failed and actually committed an act of fraud. And that was devastating. And he actually did notice, he said that how strange it was that so often he would meet a great medium who was doing these inexplicable materializations, but then they would stoop to the most ridiculous acts of fraud and he felt that it was because they were so insecure that they couldn't count on these materializations on the actual phenomenon sometimes they just didn't happen and you couldn't do that you it had to happen every single time so they would invent these ideas of how they could make it seem like it was happening for the times that it wasn't and reichel uh he just wanted to try to get people studying this and to try to find out what is really happening. How is it possible that a guy who doesn't speak German 
and who knows nothing about the place I came from. And the average German wouldn't know the right uniform and all that. And here it is. I mean, it's all there right in front of me. And how could that possibly be? There's another guy, Wyment, who was a specialist in Chinese language. He wrote this really little slim book so he didn't have to tell the story at every dinner party he went to. But he was fooled into going to a seance. He didn't want to. He had no interest. But they tricked him into going in New York City. And the reason they did was because they had this medium who was speaking in Chinese. And they wanted a Chinese expert to figure out what, you know, what's he saying? We don't know. These were very wealthy industrialists. And usually, as is often the case, the wife was kind of driving these activities. And so... Wyman reports that he sat down with this medium, another ignorant guy, you know, no real education. And the guy starts speaking Chinese. And Wyman, it's first he's listening and he's saying, you know, I know it's Chinese, but this isn't right. There's something wrong here. And then he suddenly dawns on him that what's being spoken is this incredibly pure Confucian Chinese that there's maybe only five people at that time in the world who could understand. And once he understood what it was, he could clearly tell what was being said. And he began to communicate with a spirit, and the spirit claimed to be Confucius, Confucius. So he said, he said, so I asked him some questions about the Confucian writing that has never been solved by scholars, and the guy solved it. Wow. And he was stunned by the experience. And so, again, he said, I don't know how this happened. And people dismissed it and said, oh, you know, he probably fooled himself into thinking he was hearing. You know, and he said, look, I am a world expert on Chinese language. And I'm telling you, that was the purest Confucian Chinese I've ever heard spoken or read anywhere or, you know. So there was a time there in the early 1900s, which is sort of after the big explosion of spiritualism at the end of the 1800s, where there were these strange experiences happening that we don't seem to get anymore. There's a little bit of materialization experimentation going on now, but nothing like that. Nothing that these dramatic symbols of people and dramatic communications were very commonplace at one time. Yeah. And so I, I now one thing I find interesting about this is that the that when you look at it from the point of view of what the spirits are saying about it, right? From It's almost like it's an experiment. Like they, they start out with something and they go, okay, that's, that's okay. That's working. It's bringing attention to spiritualism or our communication. Now let's, so for instance, let's start with knocking like the Fox sisters, but that's not good enough. So now we're going to do mediumship, vocal mediumship. So now the spirit can talk through the person even better. Now we're going to really prove this stuff. We're going to have tables moving around and spirits in the right clothing talking about details of life. Well, okay, well, that just created a massive criminal underground of because there was so much money in it that, in truth, the mafia even got involved and set up all this fake, like, psychic stuff because it was so easy. You know, let's say you go to a psychic and he's my friend, he's part of my community, and he calls me and says, hey, this guy Mark's going to come by, I recommended you, here's everything you need to know about him, I got a whole file for you. And they were doing that stuff. So according to the spirits, they backed off again, right? And then the next thing they did was in the 20s, 30s, 40s, there was suddenly this rush of books, anonymous books, right? Just the information, 
no miracles, no, you know, shocking revelations, just a spirit talking about what the afterlife is like and meant to help people had horrible losses during World War One. And the ultimate culmination of that is the Unobstructed Universe books by Stuart Edward White and his wife, Betty, which are amazing books and have are zero like any spiritualism that came before. Nothing about past lives or health readings or any of the Casey style stuff. These were this was an experiment in teaching a medium to actually be able to enter the what they called unobstructed world or the afterlife while still in the body. And then these dramatic communications that occurred after she left her body. And they were so dramatic that Carl Jung actually in a letter to one of his friends pointed out that he thought that this was an example of the survival of an actual spirit, like that that this could really be evidence of life after death. And who's who was so impressed that they refused to publish her date of death Hmm. because they felt she was still alive. And the whole story is just wonderful. And their teaching was so different. You know, it was so wholesome. It was just all about don't be in a rush. Don't, you know, avoid all urgency in these studies and be peaceful and appreciate the simple beauties of life. That's your way to open it up spiritually. And he used to, Stuart used to say, you know, think about when you're out taking a walk and your puppy's in front of you wagging his tail and that feeling, or think about when you're sitting with someone you love and you're both reading and the fire's on the fireplace. And he's like, those feelings are where we find our spirituality, where we find our spiritual connection. Yeah. Really great stuff. So that's what happened there. And then I actually knew somebody when I worked with Manly Hall, his name was Ed Monroe. His nickname was the Seer of the Sun Belt. This guy was a trip. When I knew him, he was in his 70s, and he was a half Cherokee Indian who'd been initiated as a Taos Pueblo shaman, And but he was a medium. He'd spent his entire life as an LAPD sergeant fixing cars in the pool, and, and at the end of his life when he retired, he didn't know what to do, and he prayed to be made use of, and then he had this weird experience where he kept like basically blacking out, but he was driving to this particular place, which was a chiropractor who did hypnosis in this little strip mall. He didn't know the guy and he felt he was going mad. I mean, he really thought, you know, I must be going senile and it happened one time too many. He went in and he just in desperation. He said, I just keep driving here. I don't know what's wrong with me. And, The guy said, well, you know, let me put you under and let's see what happens. So he hypnotized him. When Ed woke up a couple hours later, the guy was staring at him with eyes that wide and had a stack of paper this thick of things he'd written down because a spirit had spent two hours talking to the guy and explaining that Ed had been chosen for this very special mission. And I found out about it because somebody working with Ed wanted to introduce Manly Hall to Ed Monroe, but Manley Hall did not support trans mediumship at all. He liked Edgar Casey, he knew Hugh Lynn Casey, his son, but he generally told people to stay away from it. He thought it was too dangerous, both for the medium and for the people receiving readings. Yeah, I was about to ask you that because in the occult anatomy of man, he sort of distinguishes a medium from a clairvoyant and says mediums are 
typically weakened by the relationship with whatever they let take over them. So it's an unhealthy thing to do. But mm-hmm. I also was going to ask you, do you think spiritualism itself is sort of like an inheritance from the indigenous cultures here in America who participated in these sorts of rituals? I mean, the Fox sisters themselves come from a place where Native Americans still to this day are alive and well, the whole Hawadanasi nation and all the people up there, right? So there's definitely a sort of link, but you think that it's sort of like the way Greece was overtaken by Rome and Rome kind of took on all of the the aspects of the Greek culture they conquered? I think there's an element of that, definitely. I also think, though, that it came here. So, for instance, the Shakers, who were here very early, I mean, very early, Mm. there's a story told about them that there were some young Shaker women who were out walking and they heard heavenly music and they fell to the ground. They were carried back to their beds and they started to prophesy. And they called them sleeping prophets. They would fall asleep and then some other voice would speak and they would talk about these things that affected the community. So that that was going on here way back. There was there was this interest in communicating. So I think that it's a combination. I do think that the indigenous culture helped to amplify that and made people who were open to indigenous ideas feel like, oh, wow, look, you know, it's going on here. The shamans are doing a similar thing. And it's also been interesting to see how spiritualism, oh, before I say, I'll finish the other thing I was saying, which is, so when Ed Monroe actually asked, you know, what is mission here? And this was completely different. This was the idea that, that we're not going to make this guy famous. We don't want him to be an Edgar Casey, even though he's equally impressive, at least. We want to see what happens when it's only individuals are impacted. So over time, let's see how this turns out. Instead of it being sensationalized and then therefore exploited, let's keep it really quiet and see what these personal spiritual contacts do in people's lives when they are kept in this modest way. So I I did find that interesting, that when you look at it from the point of view of these alleged spirits who are describing what's going on, It's like an experiment from their side, and that might help explain why we're not seeing things like the the big, you know, dramatic materializations and such. So I think that I do think my experience is I don't know a whole bunch of mediums, but I I definitely think that Mr. Hall had a good point there. I think that there is it's troubling. I mean, it does seem to have a difficult impact on the people who do it on their health. One thing that he pointed out was, I don't know if this is true, so I don't know enough of them, but he said that mediums tend to get heavy, for example, that they put on weight. I, Edward Monroe did not do that, but he did suffer with health problems and even with anxiety at some points in his life. Because it is, you know, he, as he said it, you know, when he started this, they told him that he would be doing mostly medical diagnosis, which is what he really focused on. And he, I mean, he didn't you got to be crazy, right? I mean, this guy was a cop. I mean, he was just, you telling me that I'm supposed to tell somebody what to do when they're sick? Hmm. And they told him, yeah. And so he said, I know I won't. And they said, oh, yeah, you will. And they said, and you'll be seeing the phone numbers of the people about to call you for help. Wow. 
And so he said one day he was sitting there and he looked up and there was like, it was written on the wall. There was a phone number and he went, oh no. And then the phone rang and there was somebody, he had no idea how the guy got his number. And the guy said, I've been told that you might be able to help me. I'm desperate. I have this problem. I can't get healed. And so once that happened, he said, all right, well, I'll try it. Right. And it worked. Right. But still super uncomfortable. And I myself knew people that this guy did dramatic cures with. I mean, stuff that was, I'll give you one example. Somebody who, a young woman who was experiencing abdominal discomforts. She went to a doctor. The doctor said, can't really find anything without doing exploratory surgery. I'm thinking it's got to do with the female parts. So we're going to have to go in there and cut you open and see what's happening. Well, she was terrified. But this pain wouldn't go away, so she was afraid of that, too. Someone told her to go speak with Ed. And what the spirit told her was, you have a karmically created intense fear of pregnancy because you died in childbirth. And he said, so this is how we're going to cure your condition. One, you're going to find a really reliable form of birth control, and you're going to stick to it religiously. And two, we're going to get you back in touch with your femininity. So I want you to take bubble baths. I want you to do your nails. I mean, silly stuff, right? It wasn't even, he also gave like cures that had to do with food or substances or things like that. But this wasn't even that. This was just take some bubble baths, paint your nails and get some good birth control and you'll be fine. She did it. The problem went away and it never came back. And I talked to her years later and it never came back. There were many stories like that. So he could do these cures that seemed to be related to psychological conditions that may or may not have had to do with reincarnation. But he also had recommendations, all kinds of folk cures, Edgar Casey style stuff, where weird things that you would think, well, that how is that supposed to work? But it would. Right. So then he realized, you know, okay, I do have this, but it's a terrible burden. You know, you have this other entity that is actually why people want to meet you. And your job is to disappear while that person does things you're not aware of and you're legally responsible for. Right. Tough gig, man. Well, and it, yeah, I guess it speaks to, you know, the human condition that is sort of individualistic and we are all here on our own sort of personal journeys, right? And wow, I mean, to think of, you know, the role that you're playing, it, it must be a big sacrifice to that, right? You know, and of all the people, a cop for this experiment, right? It seems like, to your point, they're sort of going through, okay, well, they they seem skeptical. Let's take one of the most skeptical of them. Exactly. The, the, you know, Sherlock Holmes archetype and make him the medium and see what happens. Exactly. Wow, you know, what brilliant. I like about that, too, is I mentioned Stuart and Betty White and the Unobstructed Universe teaching, and they said that, that when we're in the unobstructed, when we're disembodied, the most powerful urge is to do something to make it work better down here, to think of something that you could go do that, 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 that makes the world a better place. And that it's like an obsession for every soul is how to make this grand experiment into something better than it is now. 
And from that point of view, when I think about that idea that they're up there tinkering with ideas about how to get this stuff across to us, right? How do we open up their minds? How do we, how we help them see the light? It's a very comforting idea that all that support is there. And certainly it's indigenous as well, right? Because that's the ancestors, after all, the ancestors those who went before us and they still want us to be doing well and they want to help in any way that they can. Wow. That's beautiful. Ronnie, I think that's a great place to stop for now. And we'll come back to this conversation again soon, I hope, because like I said at the beginning, we got quite a book here. It'll take me a little bit longer to get all the way through it. And I hope people are already supporting it after our first interview and picking up the book because it's a must-have if you're a fan of these topics and especially from the American point of view. A lot of this stuff was left out of our education system and Ronnie, you've continued the great work of Manly P. Hall by doing this. I think thank you. in the same way that Manly P. Hall's work touched my life and many of the people I podcast with, I think this book has that potential for the future generations. So kudos well, you. to you and your wife and or your partner, and especially considering, you know, this world we're heading to, we're going to need more folks like you two out there fighting this good fight with us with love, harmony, and peace. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. The one thing I will leave you with is that, that with AI and robotics just up ahead mm. and the disruption that's going to create in our society, especially economically, there's all the more reason to find unity and compromise. Right. Wonderful. We need to work together so that we don't have some horrible dystopian experience. Yeah. Well, and have faith that the help is there. The inspiration is there. We can do it. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like they're trying to replace the ancestors with AI. I mean, I've played around with some of these AI devices that are available for free, and it's interesting stuff. It definitely borders on the supernatural and the uncanny. We just, for the most part, I think most people don't see it through that lens because they haven't been given the context. But again, a conversation for another day. Ronnie Pontiac, thank you so much for being here. Of course, folks can pick up your book, American Metaphysical Religion, wherever books are sold. Is there a place that you prefer they pick it up, a website that you'd like them to visit to support you and your music? Um, well, generally, I tell people it's nice to buy it from the publisher Inner Traditions because they get a bigger chunk of it then. And they do so much great stuff, like books that nobody else would publish. Right. And of course, supporting local bookstores is so important. And if the book isn't there, it can be ordered. Um, for my music and films and all the other stuff that we do, I think Google, just Google my name, Ronnie Pontiac. And if you want to contact me, probably the best place is through Instagram. Right on. At the Ronnie Pontiac, because there's another one. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Well, not this Ronnie Pontiac, because you are unique, one in a million. We need folks like you. And I'm excited to have you back on. I love this conversation and the different twists and turns. And of course, still plenty of meat on the bone in that great book of you. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll be and, happy to come back anytime, Mark. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Well, folks tuning in, please go support the man and his great work. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. This show is sponsored by The Hit Kit. Go to hitkit.us or The Hit Kit on Instagram 
and check out the full line of products. The Hit Kit is a neat gadget contraption that holds your lighters and whatever you're smoking. You can even put crayons and pencils in it, according to uh, the founder and creator who lives right here in the great U.S. of A. So support this American small business. Pick up a Hit Kit. Never lose your lighter again. It's the number one way to get lit. And if you use the promo code CRAZY, you get 20% off at checkout. Or 15% off at checkout. That's right, 15% off at checkout. Thank you for listening. You are listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. That was our conversation number two with Ronnie Pontiac about his book, American Metaphysical Religion, a book that's on my shelf and it should be on yours. Check the link in the description to pick up a copy today. And of course, support our sponsors, support this podcast. What are you doing? Support our guests. So much support. I hope this show supports you and your mental diet throughout your week. Tuning in twice a week. Uh, This episode, like a recent past episode, has a part or two that for the Patreon only. So if you want to hear the full episode, sign up on Patreon or Substack and get the entire catalog of episodes, bonus episodes, past shows that I used to do with Juan and Chris. They're all there. Go check them out and uh, you'll help this show continue in the next few months. Going to go through a few changes, uh, hopefully all for the good. And we'll see you on the other side. Uh, Check your next episode coming out this Wednesday. And uh, yeah, that's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. And immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. And they don't know where it's coming from In like a hundred years We went saw upon before guns Check the facts, check the fed, check the stars Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car They each they own, you can stick with your old ways But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid And I can see the red on your lip stain White skin, blue collar, pure American made Fuck it, you can keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts But never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy Good morning in the net Feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy I think that I'm off in the deep 
sleeping. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for our military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, I ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got Kim talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. My family thinks I'm crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Just maybe. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots with it's all kind of hazy. I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pap thinks I'm on American and shady. I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an atheist. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 